Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Howdy, folks. Today's episode is a good one for everyone in marketing. You may have a ton of data, but what you don't know that you don't know can make a big difference. Before we get started, if I may toot my own horn for just a minute, I was pleasantly surprised last week to find out that this podcast was listed number one on Medical Media and Marketing's list of 10 essential podcasts. So thank you all for listening and especially for sharing. It's always fun to do these interviews, but it's a special treat to be recognized a bit by the broader community. That said, I also have a new podcast over on Substack, although you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. CC Life Science will cover all the tech around life science that isn't biology for the most part. I've done a range of interviews, but I'm zeroing in on artificial intelligence because it's touching everything in life science now and we should all know about it. Now, let's jump right into today's episode. Wayne Cerullo is the Chief Prospect Officer at B2P Partners. That's P as in prospect. Um, and I want to give a shout out to Catherine McConville, who introduced us. And uh, so, Wayne, welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio. Thanks so much. All right, so today we're going to talk about your customers, what you know about them, what you don't know about them, how to find out more about all those things that uh, you probably should know about them, and in the context of all the data that marketers are collecting these days. So I've heard you talk about something you call the data delusion. What does that mean? Uh, thanks, Chris, um, and kudos to you for getting this going. Um, Data delusion is actually a, a double entendre, which I love, uh, in that uh, there is a deluge of data that we're all buried under. I'm sure we can all relate. Um, and also, it's not all that um, informative. It's a little bit delusional. And I say that as a data person. So this is not, I'm not anti-data. I'm just uh, not naive. And so um, having been in the space for a while um, and loving the idea of decisions being data-based as opposed to like, George said this, so we're going to do what George said. Um, I think that's a beautiful thing, but there's some limitations. There's really important limitations. And I say this from the perspective of being in kind of the knowledge management business. Um, that uh, we're blind to, which are always the ones that get us. The things that we know that we're, we're um, misaddressing, um, we can deal with, but the ones that we're not aware of are, are the ones that kill us. So one of the, the things with data, and I hear this from a lot of people that I, I interview and speak with, is that um, you know data gives us uh, the, the patina of certainty, of clarity, um, and so one thing is that um, person after person that I speak with in a decision-making role says, oh, my God, we've got so many numbers and so little insight. Um, so it's just a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't really go anywhere. The second thing is that um, it kind of tells us what is, but it doesn't tell us why is. 
and why is much more powerful than what. You, you don't know where what came from. Um, so understanding why is really important. Um, another is that data is always inherently a reflection, and we never think about this, of the past. It's not a reflection of the future, can't be. So if we wanna know where things are headed, we can use predictive analytics, which is a beautiful thing and cool, but you know, basically it, it you know, if, if you've been headed this way, it says you'll continue to head this way. And that may be the exact opposite of where things are going and often is. Um, so unless you know the why, you don't know um, the, the where it's going. Um, another thing that, and I'll end with this, another thing that it, um, that it fails to do is give us a sense of where we might go as a result. Um, and so it just says what has happened. It doesn't say, here's how we could optimize where we might be. All of which, you know, again, comes back to understanding the, the how and why we got to where we think we are. Nice. Yeah. So uh, people have listened to this podcast. I'm, I hope they're saying it with me now. Like, if you don't know what you're going to do with the data, don't collect it, right? Because there's that overwhelm factor. Um, so you should have a plan for what data you need and how you're going to use it. But as you point out, um, it, it doesn't tell us everything. Um, and I, I'm sort of stewing on this right now in my head because I've thought of, you know, places where I've worked and very data driven about you know, leads and so on, but no information behind those things. And, um, you know, and we're going to get to sales and marketing alignment, but marketing people saying, you know, that these aren't helpful in some way or whatever. Um, so, um, Chris, that's an interesting point. Uh, I'm going to make an observation again, as a, as an information guy, that, uh, is the difference I think, uh, between, what we think of as data and what is the data that we don't think of. So the data that we think of in your mind right now, as we use that word, there's probably numbers in your mind, right? So here's what implicitly numbers mean. It means you already um, knew that you wanted to measure this thing. Um, you decided on a metric and you have engaged a system to produce those metrics. Those are all obvious things, but the um, what it doesn't allow for is a quickly changing environment in which you didn't know you needed to look at something. So the opportunity to know what you didn't know you didn't know, and that which is usually in my experience in you know a quarter century or so of experience here. It's the stuff you didn't know you didn't know that always gets you. Um, so data can't deal with that because data means you already knew to measure it. Um, and if you can quantify it, it means you've already decided kind of what the question is. So you've already said, okay, the issue is how many of these do we need to be looking at? And that assumes you know a lot about the question and the issue. Um, and so my... Uh, observation is that there's a huge difference that we often overlook between qualitative data and quantitative data. So quantitative data is great for once you know what you're doing. But a lot of the companies that I find that, that we work with 
are companies in fast-changing industries where the question really is, what do we need to be paying attention to as opposed to how do we need to be measuring what we already think we need to know? Right. Let me see if I get this right. So I'm collecting leads and I'm counting the number of people who click on an offer or something. There's an assumption there about what kind of people those are. Like I've already kind of set it up to say, I think that everybody clicks here is going to look like this, want this thing, have this problem. Maybe, maybe not is what you're telling me. <laughs> totally, Chris. And I say this from all humility. Um, we've done so many projects where obvious behavior led to non-obvious learning. Um, I'll, I'll mention a, a quick story for a, a, a major uh, data security company. Uh, they were coming out with version 11 of software. Like it's version 11 people. Like, first of all, why do we need to know anything? And secondly, what's the role of the person coming out with version 11? Well, obviously to show how it's better than version 10. Like why else would yeah. we be doing this? <laughs> the ironic thing that we didn't, that, that they didn't know, nobody knew because it was obvious only in hindsight was that the last thing their customers wanted to know, the last thing was how this version was better than the previous version. They didn't want to know that. In fact, the more you talked about it, the more they covered their ears. Why? Because from a buyer's perspective, what was obvious to buyers, but not to sellers, was that you've already done 10 versions of this. So the fact that it's version 11 means you guys are on top of this. I don't need to know the specifics that you're trying to tell me. So the more they did the marketing about the stuff that was obvious to them to sell, the, least, the less their buyers were interested in listening. So we don't yeah. know what we don't know. So to clarify on that one, I'm assuming people who already had version 10 and been in the program for a while are probably going to upgrade to 11 and they get it. But if you're looking for new customers, which is what I assume is the situation here, new people don't. Yeah, I don't. It goes to 11. It's a spinal tap moment. Like well, they're looking for a problem to be solved, not for the problem you've already solved to be incrementally better. What I love about these stories, but also frustrates me, Chris, is that once you, once you, you tell the punchline, the joke is obvious. It's like, well, of course, why would you need to know that? But inside the factory, when we're all working on like, how do we make this thing better and make a difference? And how do we make, this is really version 11. It's not a version 10.5 um, is, is that we were, we've been socialized into looking at things from a producer's perspective, not from a buyer's perspective. And so that's the very obvious thing that we bring and that companies need to have. And unfortunately, the people working on the project are the people on the planet that are least likely to be able to think about or see things from that other perspective. It's ironic because they're expert in what they're doing. Yeah. And because they're expert in what they're doing, they are blind to the, some of the obvious things. And I say that from all humility. Yep, yep. I'm, so I'm a big fan of Scott Galloway. I don't know if you follow him or not, but um, one of my favorite things that he says, it's hard to read the label from inside the bottle. 
<laughs> well said. All right. So tell us about how marketing has changed to create this situation where we're not thinking about what's behind the numbers. Well, back in the age before data, before we had so much data, we didn't have a choice but to like think about like, how are people buying? Why are people buying? Um, and back when we all lived in villages and, you know, Wayne's pretty good horseshoes were bought by, you know, people that I knew because they were, you know, the, the, the baker and the candlestick maker. There was no separation between the, the producer and the consumer. So we knew each other because we, we lived with each other. We knew, we knew each other in the village. But now that we're in a global village, um, there's a huge distance between us. And there's this whole thing called marketing process that comes in the way sometimes. Um, so, so what marketing has become, my observation from a kind of sociological perspective, is that marketing has become much more program management, that you are now managing the MarTech stack and you are running programs to produce outcomes to, to get, you know, how many, you know, SQLs and, and, you know, MQLs do we have? And, and so as a result, there's kind of a more of a focus on the pipes than on the water in the pipes, uh, by which I mean, there's more of a focus on the programs that we're running and how are they linked to each other and how are we orchestrating this pipeline uh, rather than, and we you use that term pipeline rather than prospects. Um, which is why I'm a chief prospect officer, because I'm here to help represent, you know, how and why prospects buy or or don't, um, because that's the most important thing to the success of your company. Um, making all the other stuff that you do is great, but unless you have people who are interested in buying it, you're not going to get there. So there's two other aspects of marketing that I think we gloss over. Again, glossing over is the is the worst thing we can do. Uh, so we're focused on program management, but we're not focused on change management. And all of the B2B SaaS companies that I work with are in the business of helping to change and improve the way that companies do business. So from their perspective, from our client's perspective, they're looking to sell software that enables change. From the buyer's perspective, they're looking to stay competitive, to be more competitive, to do whatever it takes to get there. And technology is a part of that process. So from the buyer's perspective, the fact that you're offering new technology is maybe interesting, but it's just part of a larger range of issues that need to be dealt with, like hiring and training and, and support and interaction of this with everything else that we already have going on. And where does this fit in our priorities? Um, I'm sorry, we're putting in a new ERP. So all of these other decisions need to be put off for like, you know, two years. Um, so, so change management is a huge thing. And as a result, um, very, no decisions are made by individuals anymore. And this is another hidden side, but it's really obvious once I say it, that in addition to program management and change management, marketers are in the business of consensus management, 
although they often don't think of that to our detriment. Um, sales don't happen in the B2B space without at least three to five to seven to 17 people agreeing on a course of action. Uh, so if you have a prospect at a company who's really interested, um, I'm sorry, because <laughs> that person, if you don't enable that person to be able to change the conversation within the company as a whole, and you're not enabling that person to change the conversation as a whole among all that person's peers, then all you have is a waste of time is someone who's going to suck your energy and time and not be able to get to a consensus that's going to lead to a sale. I can see how that can happen. So um, what does it take to reach the other two, four, six people? And what, what kind of things do you do to get your champion to think that way about his or her colleagues to get them on board? Yeah, it's a powerful question, Chris. Um, well, um, I love alliteration. So I'll say what you just asked about is the journey from the data delusion uh, to decision drivers. Because unless we understand the decision drivers for a product set uh, in a competitive environment, we're not going to get to that. We're not going to get past all the little pieces of data and numbers that we have around us that aren't telling us a story to the, to the core story. So what I have found as the solution and what our clients appreciate is a holistic integrated story about how and why their prospects buy or don't. Um, and we call that the decision drivers that comprise, you know, four different elements. And they're pieces of information that you need to know to get the whole story together. So um, one that we've kind of been talking about is, is who are those buyers? Um, so you need to know who are the personas and what really drives them. And what we identify is the, the key prospect insight, that's our KPI, is um, what's the key thing that you need to know to get Chris Connor to want to buy into this idea? That's really important and a good place to start, but it's not complete because you need to understand just to your question, Chris, how can I equip you to be a change maker in your organization. So I need to understand the buyer's journey and I need to understand who are the other players on that journey. So um, what we do is we create not just a prospect persona, but an account persona, uh, which is a picture of how do people make decisions about this class of product? Uh, who are the other people you need to bring on board? When do you bring them on board? Um, what role do they play? What kind of information or influence are they looking for? How do you reach them? Just how to orchestrate that whole dance. So that's the second thing. And in that journey, you need to understand, you know, what are the sources of influence? Um, what are the timing? How are you going to orchestrate that in your marketing um, experience as well as your seller experience. So how do you, you know, align sales and marketing around helping to create a consensus? Um, the third part is to understand what's the difference between winning and losing. 
And this is a part of the process that companies really, really, really need to know, and they frequently don't. We call this, you know, win-loss research, which is the comparison between, you know, the times you won, the times you lost, the times you stalled, because research says that two-thirds of engagements end in no decision. Um, and, um, and what are the differences among those? So um, we do persona research and journey research in the context of win-loss research. Um, so that helps us understand how things align or don't align. Um, and part of that is whether they chose you or whether they chose nothing or whether they chose someone else. So the last part of it that we do, the fourth part of that is concept research, which is looking at um, who is it that we want them potentially to think of us as being. So right now they have a perception of, uh, buyers have a perception of you know, our brand. Um, they have a perception of competitive brands. We need to understand that. And what we ought to do the work before we go out there and talk to people is understand where might we go? Where do we think might be an answer to this? Because together we probably, inside you know, our room of thought leaders inside a company, we probably have the answer or a part of the answer. Um, we don't have it polished and right, but we have parts of it. So what we do is create three or four um, you know, alternative directions that the company could, you know, positionings for the company uh, or its products and um, get reactions to those. So long way of saying, Chris, that um, in one fell swoop, we look at the combination of who are the buyers, how do they go through the buying process, um, how do they... Um, uh, make decisions that lead to successful outcomes for you, and what would be uh, the positioning that you could take to optimize that? So sorry for the long answer, but uh, the actual the answer is comes about pretty quickly. But it's all integrated. That's and that's the powerful thing. Nice. So I'm going to ask you more about that. I'm curious. I'm I've heard about well. I, I understand qualitative research to a degree. I don't understand the scale of it. So can you give me an example of like how many people do uh, who bought bought nothing and bought from somebody else do you have to talk to to put this picture together and whatever whoever else you need to talk to? Yeah. Good question, Chris. Um, I mean, one of the things that I'm sensitive to is the cost of information, cost in terms of dollars and in terms of time. So the best answer when it's late is not the best answer. When it's more expensive than you have the ability to invest in, doesn't mean anything. So um, I believe that answers should be, um, you know, 70 to 80 percent correct. And let's go and try and optimize and learn as we go. Um, uh, I don't believe in like just going out and taking a gamble. I think business is too expensive for that. On the other hand, we can't wait till it's perfect because then it'll be wrong. It'll late be late. So, so we try to keep things really efficient. And I say that because um, when we do the kind of research that I'm talking about, we use small samples with really in-depth conversations. So we, we do hour-long conversations 
at a minimum. Um, and we really get to know all those different integrated aspects of the issue. We also really pinpoint who we want to talk to. You know, it's left-handed people who are over six foot, who, you know, have, you know, very specific about their role in a, in a recent process at a certain kind of company that's a really um, attractive prospect to the client. Um, and then the, um, in terms of the number of interviews, because it's that focused and that in-depth, we start to hear usually pretty good consensus by the time we get to about eight interviews you know, uh, in any particular cell. So if we wanted to talk to, you know, let's say wins, losses and stalls, um, that's like two dozen interviews. Okay. Um, and um, and that that's all it takes. And it depends upon the size of the issue and how many different segments are involved and that sort of thing. But we find we're able to make this incredibly efficient a lot faster than companies are used to and less expensive to my sugar. Nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so give me some examples of where this has worked. Uh, some success stories. Yeah. Um, yeah, totally cool. Um, well, I told you about uh, a data, data security company, um, we recently worked with a company in the HR space that um, is really great at performance tracking and helping companies um, identify who and how uh, people are succeeding at the company. Um, they're in a competitive marketplace and there were real questions about how to make them stand out. Uh, you know, lots of lots of companies in that space now. Um, so what we did was we, we looked at um, potential ways in which they stood out and how they got in successfully. Um, we started working with the marketing group. And before we started, we actually made a point of talking with folks in sales in the company, in product, uh, uh, the CEO, um, and got... Um, and engineering looked at various aspects of the product and how it had gotten to where it was and what people's theories were about where it might go. So that was really very informative. Um, before we talk to their prospects and customers, we want to know where the com as much as the company, in a sense, in terms of the way the process works. One of the fun things that we found was um, there were a number of cases in which the HR group was actually not the, um, the leader for the process, but they were actually playing the role more of um, uh, orchestrator of the process that really came from the company's making a decision that we're going to be a performance-oriented organization. And there's some books on that that have come out in recent years that are really big on that. So one of the things that we recommended to them, and they were very excited about, was to um, offer a CEO book um, that would be, you know, read on planes uh, and um, discussed in the senior team outside of HR that 
would just introduce the idea of, you know, a performance-led team and then would lead to a conversation in a, uh, you know, thought leadership context for this company. Um, and that was widely uh, accepted and was the uh, by various members of the leadership team inside the, the client company and had already been proven to be quite successful um, for them in a few cases and for their competitors in several. Um, so that was a really powerful way. And one other story along those lines that I think you might find and your reader, your listeners might find interesting is in the healthcare space. Um, we, we worked with a company that was um, in selling into hospitals and selling uh, pump systems. Um, I mentioned that our work is in depth and part of being in depth is listening carefully and creatively. And when we were talking with people about buying pump systems, um, one of the things that we heard was that the pumps were viewed as pretty much all the same. Now, if you're a marketer, that's kind of demoralizing. Not <laughs> yeah, that's a get punch. Not unusual, but like whether they're, they actually are the same or not, the perception out there is pretty much like they've all passed government tests. So like, yeah, what they what we heard was there was a little company and we knew this because we had done the in-depth work within the company before we went out. And we we had heard about this one little company and they I think they had two percent market share. Despite having two percent market share, we heard about them in maybe about half the interviews that we did. Um, with their customers and prospects. Um, so um, we creatively connected that 2% market share should not be heard 50% of the time. So uh, we said to them, we think there's something going on here. And if it were our company, we would want to know what it is because we think it might be the answer to breaking out of this, all these pumps are the same business that's going to kill you. And they said, surprisingly, that sounds like a good idea. Let's do it. So we did. We went and found, uh, you know, we did, you know, competitive work to find as many of these companies, customers as we could of that 2%. And we uh, asked them what was the driver in their making the decision for this little company. And what we heard was, it was an exceptional um, implementation process that engaged the entire team around adopting this new pump system as um, a step forward. Now, remember, this relates to what I was talking about before, which is like, it's not about your stuff. It's about how it fits into the whole environment. So one of the things, I mean, this is going to be silly, but it comes down to another D word, donuts. So if you're the night shift, you know, of nurses and you have a new pump system, like, oh, my God, what is how how exciting is that? That's a rhetorical question. Um, I mean, <laughs> That's that's the last thing you want to know. It's like now I need to learn a new pump system. Are you kidding me? So um, so what they did was honestly, folks, they brought in donuts. 
they made a little party of it and they brought in uh, a team of people that included night nurses who have been in that situation, have worked that shift and knew what it was like with whom they bonded. And then they had conversations about pumps and, and, you know, all that's involved in that. So it's a very simple story from the back end, but looking at it from the perspective of a manufacturer of pumps, implementation is just something you like you do to be able to sell systems. From their perspective, it was the point. And I will note that that company went from um, last in class, KL, the KLAS ratings, to first in class. They also went from giving away the, the implementation process to charging for it. Wow. So that's the power of understanding how and why prospects buy. Yeah. That that lesson has come up several times. I just love those stories where you think it's the product and you work so hard to differentiate it. And a lot of products, you can make them different, but are they is it relevant? And then there's all the experience about it, like how do I buy it? How do I use it? What's it going to be like? How much do I have to learn? Um, I, not by any skill, avoided one of those situations. So I was at a company where we were looking at a marketing automation system and the person on my team recommended a very simple one, which I was all for, but the IT guys wanted to look at something else. And then I went to a different company where they had the something else. And I thought that thing would have buried us. We would have been doing no marketing while we were trying to figure out what that thing did. Because That's a great example we have that capacity. of understanding each of the people involved in the decision, what their perspective is, what does good look like for them. And if you're a bells and whistles guy, like you want to hear sounds, you know, and, if you're, <laughs> and that's the last thing you want to hear if you're the night nurse, you know, you don't want right. to hear that, that pump going off. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we've come to the end of our time, but um, where can people find out more if they if they want to learn more or connect with you? Yeah, super. Um, Chris, I've always wanted to do this, not having been Vanna White in the rest of my life. Um, you could go to b2ppartners.com, uh, and there you can um, get a copy of our ebook, um, which we also have as a book you can buy on Amazon. Personas with Punch, which is part of what we were just talking about. And the, then what I find really exciting is uh, another book we've done called Repossibility, which is about the success stories of companies that have gone through a process of getting back in touch with the people who buy. The, the answer to the most important question uh, of um, every company is how and why prospects buy. Uh, without which you don't have a company. So um, their uh, repossibility is the story that I found really encouraging uh, back in our last um, economic crisis about how do companies get through major crises. And I started by thinking about companies that made it through the depression and did some research to find out how they succeeded. 
And what I found that was so encouraging and I think would be encouraging to the people, you know, on, you know, listening to your podcast is that we identified lots of stories of companies that succeeded, not despite the challenge that they faced, but because of it. And had they not gone through that challenge, they wouldn't have gone through the work that took them to the next level. So behind every crisis, there's a, a huge opportunity. And I yes. find that incredibly encouraging. So uh, yep. if you go to b2p.partners.com, um, you can get those ebooks or, or feel free to order them on, um, on Amazon. Nice. I will put a link to uh, your website on the show notes for this episode. So Wayne Cirillo, thank you so much for sharing all that wisdom with us today. Thank you, Chris. It's, uh, I appreciate the work that you're doing. Thanks. All right. This has come up several times on this podcast. It's not always about your product. There are so many things around your product that contribute to the total customer experience that you should be thinking about all of those installations, service, startup, all those things, and think about where you have an advantage in terms of marketing that way. That's all I've got for this week. If you like the podcast, as always, please share it with your friends. I very much appreciate it because if you're listening to it and you like it, there's someone you know who will like it as well. And then please check out cclifescience.substack.com com for my other podcast next episode up next week on 3d bioprinting very interesting and then beyond that more artificial intelligence so uh, i will talk to you all here in a couple weeks and maybe over there next week bye-bye <music>